This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Kia ora. You're listening to the locals on 89.0 Free FM, called Dan Armstrong Tokoingoa. Last week we began a two-part interview with Dr Vincent O'Malley about the 1863 Crown invasion of the Waikato. Laying the foundations, we explored the propaganda used in Governor Brown's desire to destroy the Kingitanga movement. In part two, I want to focus on two key events, the massacres at Rangiafia and Orako. These occurred in the months following an invasion that was based on a pack of lies. A lot has already happened by this point, and I'd really recommend Mihi Forbes' Stories of Tainui to get that insight. Without further delay, let's crack into it. This is The Locals, and this is Dr. Vincent O'Malley, Part 2. alleged massacre, depending on who you ask. As a historian, there's a number of competing narratives of what happened, uh, shrouded in so much chaos. As one of our leading figures breaking this down, how have you interpreted all the different accounts of those events, and how have you distilled, to as much of your ability as possible, what were the true events, or as close to truthful events? Well, there there are certain um, basic facts that I think, you know, are are clear to all. One is that Rangiafia was not a fighting part. It was just an open village. And it was a place of sanctuary for women, children and elderly men. And one of the reasons that they had gone to Rangiafia is that after the... um, Battle at Rangiriri in November 1863, Governor Gray wrote to the King Itanga and said, don't bring your women and children into the fighting par again. It's, they're in harm's way. Take, take them to a place of safety and, and they'll be protected there. So the King Itanga think about that and, and they send messages back to the government that Rangiafi is the place of sanctuary for women and children and the old men. So, there's an assumption there that, that Gray had already said that such places will not be attacked. So Rangiafia is surely, it's a sanctuary, it will be protected, it, its status will be recognised. The governor has said this. That doesn't happen. Um, and so it's dawn on a Sunday morning and, you know, the first troops who enter are on cavalry and, and there, are, there, are, there are people sort of running in all directions in panic. and. and um, you know, quite horrific scenes. And obviously one of the most contentious incidents is the burning of a whare. And there are a number of eyewitness or, or contemporary accounts of what took place there. Some of the, the British and colonial troops say that the the whare was um, ac- accidentally caught fire. Which, when you think about it, would be a natural assumption to make 
if you hadn't seen anything else happen, or maybe even if you were trying to cover up something more sinister. On the other hand, there are multiple accounts, including from people like Von Tempsky, saying that um, the fire was deliberately started by, by Crown forces in order, you know, uh, because there were a number of Māori inside the whare, um, and um, thinking about that, why would you make up a story that incriminated your own side? Uh, that, that doesn't make sense. So I think there are strong grounds for um, considering that, that, that the multiple uh, accounts by Pākehā who say we, 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 we did this deliberately, I think that, that it, it seems absolutely clear that that was the case. And you think also of the enormous anger and bitterness that this produced for Māori, yeah, um, who talk about Rangiafia um, and the events there, not as not as the normal things that happen during during a war when people are killed in battle. They talk about it as kohuru murder, um, and you know, Wurumu Tamihana famously says that after Rangiafia, I realised that this would be a very great war for New Zealand. Um, and there was a sense that um, the British would stop at nothing in order to um, impose their authority, including the attack on the, on the settlement, which was, as I say, not a fighting power, it was just an open village. All of the men were at Patarangi waiting for a British attack that never came. They abandoned that after Rangiafia uh, and then there's an engagement the next day at Haerini, but um, you know, even years later, um, a missionary Thomas Grace talks about you know, nearly 20 years later, he comes across um, a, uh, a Tainui Rangatira who who talks with enormous anger about what happened at Rangiafia, and so you know, the mamai, the pain, the hurt of that is is not something that's easily forgotten because. Um, you know, these, these were horrific incidents and they were ones that the, the, the British understandably didn't want to dwell upon in any great length in their kind of official version of what took place. Um, and even their, you know, the official casualty return for, for Rangiafia, I think the British said that, that 12 Māori were killed there, but other reports are you know, possibly over a hundred, who knows, because there was a vested interest in not publicising the fact that women and children had been killed at this place, in the, in the settlement. So Rangiafia, um, it's wrong to even describe it as a battle. A battle is kind of like two opposing forces. This wasn't the place here, it was, you know, somebody, somebody said to me, it's almost like a, um, a New Zealand version of melee. You know, when you know a, a sort of community of of, of civilians are, are basically attacked, and and, and you know there, there were some people in Rangiafia, there, there were some muskets there, and they, they, you know it wasn't as if there weren't a, a response when the British British arrived, but there wasn't a military force at Rangiafia that that you know that, as I said, the men were elsewhere uh, waiting for the British attack on Patarangi that never came because Cameron bypassed it, and, and you know. To this night march that 
was time to arrive at Rangiafi at dawn. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, those incidents are, um, are really horrific. And, and as I say, they're ones that are not easily forgotten. After the massacre, troops would go on to take over Te Amotu and Kehikehe area and the lands and resources there. If I remember your book correctly, the decision was made against Rewi Maniapoto's desire to set up defences at Urapo because of its positioning in the swamp and lack of access to water. Mm. And subsequently the events have been told in movies and popularised and not entirely told truthfully. And again, you have, the, you, know, the perspective, you have the stories that remove the massacring afterwards, stories from different angles. Can you give us an idea of what actually happened at Odako? Mm. Yeah, well, you're right. There's been a great deal of myth-making around this. You know, Grewe's last stand is seen as a sort of um, noble and defiant um, final stand before Māori sort of settled down uh, and accept their position of subserviency, and that's it's not what happens at all. You know, the, the idea that um, this was a chivalrous and noble uh, conflict couldn't be further from the truth. Again, just just like Rangiafia, there are multiple atrocities committed at Oraco, um, and most of those don't happen during the siege itself. They happen when, on the final day, on on. 2nd of April, 1864, when Māori inside the pa, you know, that they've been without food and water and ammunition for several days. And, and there'd been ongoing debate about what to do. Um, finally, they, they, they decide to leave the pa. And, and some of the eyewitness accounts are quite incredible. They, they don't run from the pa. They kind of move slowly in a group with the most important people in the centre, that Rewi Maniapoto and others have been protected by those on the outside. And the British thought that they had had an arco surrounded. And even during the course of the battle, Auckland newspapers are um, reporting an imminent, you know, the imminent capture of the power with all of the people inside it. But, um, of course, it had to leave a gap um, where, the, where a cannon would fire on, on the other side, and, and so there was a small opportunity. And so Māori come out of the pa in a group, walking slowly, deliberately at first. As, as they get closer to the British lines, they start to run. And it's at that point that the really horrific things start to happen, because um, the British troops and their colonial allies give chase. And so you have people literally running for their lives on foot, running for the safety of the king country, being hunted down by, by men on horseback. And um, there are multiple documented cases of, for example, female prisoners who are bayoneted um, to death in cold blood. And, you know, account, accounts from Pākehā who talk about this, um, William Meir attempts to talks about attempting to save one woman's life and, and there are other examples as well and one of the Auckland newspapers again describes this I think it says um, woman, many women, children, many children um, killed and hunted down at Arako 
Um, so this is well known at the time, but that's not the story that Pākehā prefer to remember about Arako. So there's this kind of myth-making around it, and um, I, I, I learnt that when I um, I looked at the um, when I first sort of started researching how had the Waikato War been remembered and forgotten over time. One of the first things I looked at was what happened on the 50th anniversary of 1914. And, because I'd I, I assumed Pākehā had always forgotten the New Zealand Wars and, and just kind of suppressed this history, but actually the story is more complex than that. 1914, there's a huge crowd gathered at the site, 5,000 people, um, special trains laid on from Auckland, you know, enormous occasion. Really interesting thing, most of the people there are Pākehā, very, very few Māori there in 1914. Why is that? Because the Pākehā organisers of, of the 50th commemoration call it a celebration. They're celebrating Arākau, and, and they call it 50 years of peace, but the subtext is also that Arākau, according to the, this kind of mythical version, um, is the, origin, the origins of, of this idea that New Zealand has the greatest race relations in the world because they thought that this was a noble and chivalrous battle after which um, there's this kind of mutual respect forged in battle and, and, and people live together in harmony and peace and so on afterwards. Um, and that's why there were so few Māori there. How could Māori celebrate an event where their ancestors were killed, their lands taken, their economy destroyed, you know, and future generations of Tainui people uh, condemned to lives of poverty. It's nothing to celebrate. That myth-making carries on through a lot of the 20th century. It's even there in the 1960s on the centenary. I think by the 1970s, you can't get away with that stuff anymore. So I think for a lot of Pākehā, you kind of get this uncomfortable silence around the Waikato War. Um, people don't know how to talk about it. Uh, it makes them uncomfortable and guilty and so on. And I, I guess that's kind of the, for me, the challenge in writing the book was how do we move beyond that to a phase where we can be mature enough as a nation to own this history and say it's part of our story. It, it's, it's a grim history, um, but it is something that is, is us. It, it's, it's, it's part of the story of our community. How do you think we should mark the events, both locally in the Waipa and Waikato, but as a nation? I, I think the first thing is um, that we need to openly and honestly confront the fact that this history took place. And in order to do that, we need to be aware of it. So we need to teach the history in schools. Young people themselves are, are calling out for this. It's just adults who seem to have the hang-ups with it. It's really weird. Like. You know, the young people seem to have a, a, a more mature engagement with this. And, and I've, I've been doing numerous school talks over the last year, and they really get why this matters. So teach it in schools, also protect the sites. You know, it's great that, that, that there'll be, you know, some kind of um, things that are okay to, to, to mark that site properly, and the, and the Crown has, has acquired the land there so that there can, can be some kind of um, uh, memorial or heritage centre there, or, or whatever, is, is decided by, uh, by by iwi and others there. And I, I think um, so. Once we have an awareness, then um, 
we can start to have the conversations that we need to have as a nation about this history, why it matters, and um, why it's part of our story, and so that we move beyond this kind of history where we remember things like Gallipoli and world wars fought offshore, but we we forget the wars fought here. A challenge was, was to write about that conflict in a way that wasn't seen to be a kind of finger-pointing thing that wouldn't that that would allow Pakeha to to understand the story, to embrace it. And in terms of how you know how that that um, history is commemorated, I think you know with the Ramomahara, the day of commemoration. I mean, I hope in time that that becomes something like Anzac Day, where it's it's a day a day of reflection and and maybe even you know, people take the opportunity to go and visit local sites. Um, I mean, the ironic thing is that for too many people, they wouldn't even be aware of the existence of these places. So I think in that respect, not only do we need to educate um, young people about the history, but adults also need resources to learn about this, whether it's through websites or, or or documentaries on TV or, or books or whatever, that, that we just need to share the information about this history so that people can understand it and know that it's part of our story. As a Pākehā male, what right do we have to talk about these events when people from our own side that were committing such crimes mm. um, how do Pākehā engage with this conversation and understanding it when only one side effectively has been remembering the pain of the past? Yeah, well I think part of, part of the answer to that is that um, of course there were two sides in this conflict and you know we, we, we talk about the British Army but it was almost an Irish army, at, at least 40% uh, probably of the troops who served in the in the Waikato War were Irish. And they were here to do to Māori what had been done to their own people. And, and how do they feel about that? So there are those aspects of the story that also need to be brought out. Um, and also the experiences of the, the many military settlers who were recruited to occupy the confiscated lands um, and fought through the later stages of the wars as well. One of the things when I looked at that was, um, you know, a lot of those people did not really gain by that. Um, a lot of them were gold miners recruited in Otago or Australia with no farming experience or expertise, no capital living in the middle of an active war zone um, a long way from, from their markets and they, so most of them sold their 50 acre section for a bowl of grog or five pounds or whatever as soon as they could. Most of those lands were acquired by Auckland speculators, people like Frederick Whitaker and, and Thomas Russell who ironically were the, the architects of confiscation and, and who profit enormously at a personal level as a result of this. So I also talk about the fact that the story is not, a, is not an uncomplicated one where 
um, all Pākehā are beneficiaries as a result of the war. Um, it doesn't necessarily work out that way. And, and indeed for many of the um, troops in the British Army who um, you know, see many of their uh, comrades killed in action, um, they become increasingly bitter and disillusioned with what they're being asked to do. They, they do see it, um, or at least many of them, come to see it as a war of conquest that's being fought for the exclusive benefit of New Zealand settlers. And many of the troops, and indeed many people back in Britain, um, start asking themselves why they should be fighting this war on behalf of settlers in New Zealand. What does what does Britain stand to gain by this at all? Nothing at all. So um, that's a, a position that even General Cameron, the, the, the commander of the British forces in New Zealand, comes to adopt. And after Araco, you know, colonial ministers are agitating for the war to be pushed even further south, he just flat out refuses to do that. Uh, he says, we've gone as far as we'll go. He didn't want to um, incur more heavy losses on his own side through you know, pushing even further south into Maniapoto territory. So this history is not just a Māori history. There's, there are a lot of Pākehā dimensions to this history as well, both within New Zealand, but, but you know, in a wider context as well, because this is important um, in the wider story of British imperialism globally as well. When you talk about this, as you just have, how do you feel? Well, um, you know, as a historian, you, you need to... Um, you can't get captured too much by what happens. Sometimes you're writing about really horrific things, but um, you, you need to try and um, set that out in a, in a kind of straightforward way. One of the things that people, uh, one of the things I, I decided when I was writing the Waikato War book is I knew it was going to cover some really horrific things and one of the things that I wanted to avoid doing is using a lot of adjectives to um, to articulate my sense of moral indignation about what hap happened. And I didn't want to position myself like, isn't this bad, isn't this bad? Isn't... I just let readers, these are the things that happened. You decide how you feel about that history and, and what needs to happen. And, you know, so I, I, try and, um, I try and stick to that. But sometimes when you're talking about these things um, and, and um, what happened at places like Rangiapu, you can't help but get a bit emotional about that, you know. Historians are human, so, you know, I do find that, you know, it, it is something that is incredibly painful and um, is awkward to talk about. And, and sometimes it, people listening to this history feel uncomfortable about it as well, but these are the conversations we have to have, uh, as difficult as it, as it may be sometimes. Now this interview was recorded pre-COVID, which feels like a lifetime ago. So for a recent update on things, I turn to Anne Blythe, director of the Te Aumotu Museum. The Arawai journeys, what's the feedback from the public? 
So, so Te Arawa Journeys was launched in December 2019, and our user numbers have been steadily rising, and we now have over 15, uh, 14,000 rather users of Te Arawa Journeys, which is great. Uh, feedback has been really positive from the people that have engaged with it. They feel that the, the breadth and the depth of the stories that are in there are, are really great. Um, they've enjoyed that. And they've enjoyed the fact that the, um, the stories have come from authentic voices. Um, so we've actually worked really hard to make sure that they are authentic stories from those authentic voices. Do you have any updates on the future museum? So yes, Council purchased the Bunnings building in Te Amutu. Um, Bunnings closed, so Council purchased that building uh, last year, in the second half of last year. So we're walking, working towards uh, Te Arawai, the museum opening there. It'll probably be 24, 25 before it opens. Um, we've got money set aside in the long-term plan for it. Uh, we just have to now relook at all the work we've done for the other site, uh, which is great background work. There's a lot of effort gone into that so we just have to rejig that now to fit into the Bunnings site so yeah it's looking really positive. Uh, So how optimistic are you with the changes to the school curriculum around New Zealand history? I think it's a a really positive step in the right direction Um, it's going to look at topics in a different way and there's a real focus on that local history and local stories which I think will help students have a, a much more in-depth understanding of of the events that happened in their area. So I think it's a really good positive step in the right direction. It's great too that when they developed the curriculum, they consulted with iwi and with museums. Um, It it gives it more breadth and more depth to that curriculum. So I I think it's a really good good step. Fantastic. And are there any areas where you think we as a society well, need to up our game with acknowledging and guarding the invasion of the Waikato? I I think it's going to be a slow process. I I think there's definitely more interest in the New Zealand land wars story than there was when I started at this museum nine years ago. There's lots more people looking for that information and trying to find that out. Um, I think there's a lot more resources available now too. Of course, there's the great works by by Vincent O'Malley, um, his recent publications, which are great. There's also the videos that Radio New Zealand have put out, the recent one with Mihirangi Forbes on the New Zealand wars. Um, There's Te Arawajunis, of course, and the Te Amutu Museum. So I think there's lots more ways that people can find that information out. And I think people are a lot more interested in doing that as well. Um, I think it's important to note too, alongside that, that it's going to create a lot of emotions um, going through these stories and understanding. So I think that, you know, we're not necessarily wanting people to feel guilty or ashamed or angry, um, but that we just need to understand as a nation what happened and, and those events were, were not good and, like I say, are going to raise a lot of emotions, quite rightfully so. Um, but we just need to move forward as a community understanding the events that happened here, I think, is the really important message from that. Thank you both, Vincent and Anne. Learning, understanding and grappling with this history and its ripples through to the present isn't easy, but it is necessary. I've said this before, so I'm not going to rattle off the speech again. I'm too tired right now. What I do know is that there is some great material out there to provide that depth, whether it's Black Sheep, Ghost South Road, Te Arawai Journeys, Great Wall for New Zealand. There are multiple paths to learn and understand how we've got to this point. So that wraps up another show.
You can find this and other episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search The Locals. And I'll post those links on the Dan Armstrong Park and Country Facebook page. We'll be back with a new episode next Tuesday. But until next time, thanks for listening. Cheers. Hi For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.